0: Good morning. My name is Ben Dietrich. I'm coming to you live from our studios at Hillsdale College. This is American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We've got a big show for you today. First, though, on the phone right now is Grover Norquist. He is the president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, thank you for joining us this morning. Sorry there, Grover. We missed you, but now you should be, we should be able to hear you on the air. Grover, thank you for joining us this morning.
1: Absolutely. Good to be with you.
0: Great. So, you know, today I wanted to ask you a couple questions. Um, we've had you on the show before. We always appreciate your insight. Um, the first thing I want to ask you about, though, is, of course, Elizabeth Warren. She is looking more and more like the front runner. And one of the things that she's brought up in this campaign that we wanted to discuss in the show for our listeners is this, this whole idea of antitrust law. Um, She's brought it back into the discussion. And, uh, you know, a lot of the conservatives today don't realize that this is something that even President Trump brought up in 2016. Um, He spoke out about uh, the tech companies as well, and as well as about the, you know, the time warmer deal when they were trying to merge with, with Fox as well. So is there a role for the government to play in breaking up monopolies? And is Elizabeth Warren correct on this issue?
1: Look, the only reason, the only structure that can create a monopoly is the monopoly of the federal government. The federal government is a monopoly. The 50 states have to compete. They can only be so stupid because at some point people will leave California or they'll leave New York, as they are now. Uh, The federal government comes in. It's a monopoly. And it says to some company, we think you have too much of market share. One of the questions is, what do you mean market share? You mean just in Massachusetts? You mean around this town? You mean in the country? You mean in the world? Uh, technology, particularly the high-tech companies, each of the ones now, Facebook was once never supposed to be able to compete uh, because there was another company that everybody realized was the natural monopoly. Uh, you know, AOL was, you know, each of these, the search engines have changed I am not concerned as long as we allow complete entry into the market and we allow new competitors to compete. They will not only take market share. Someday someone will take market share from Facebook. Someday they'll replace Facebook as the leading uh, function, as Facebook did to MySpace. And there are all those wonderful quotes from all the brilliant uh, economic analysts going, no one will ever be able to compete with MySpace. Well, I don't know. You use MySpace. I'm not sure people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is good to have lots and lots of competition. And frankly, sometimes there's, there's a merger in telecommunications between two firms that will end up being non-unionized. And the unionized companies don't like that. And the unions don't like that. But having three strong companies, one non-unionized, is actually a big step forward from four companies, two of which are too small to actually compete properly. So I, I am much more interested in is there entry, to the market? Can, can anybody start a company that wants to? Or is there some legal, you know, restriction? You have to get a license. Uh, when you got to get licensed, license, that's when you end up with monopolies. Oh, the guys who do power plants right. have government-run monopolies. In this country, we didn't start with a monopoly phone company, AT&T at the time. There were so many different phone companies that AT&T invented the concept of the natural monopoly. <laughs> they said, we're a natural monopoly. We have infinitely declining cost curves. You should uh, ban anybody from competing with us and make us a monopoly. Uh, there were hundreds of small phone companies. Uh, and then, of course, then they broke up AT&T and they came into different pieces. It's new technologies and new innovations and new entrance to a market that keep who's ever there on their toes. Right. I want competition, and government is no good at managing that their best they can do
0: is get out of the way. So, I want I want to continue to play um, devil's advocate with you a bit on this issue. Uh, you know, and I do agree with you. You know, just to be upfront about the the whole idea that the biggest you know concern for creating monopolies is regulation in this country. I think that's definitely a, a fair point to add there. But you know, President uh, Theodore Roosevelt, a Republican, he was kind of known as the one who really championed um, antitrust laws. Would you say then, with the the argument you've just put forward about monopolies and that there needs to be, as long as there's no barriers to entry, then it's okay, would you say that he was correct in breaking up the companies that he did um, back then? Uh,
1: No, absolutely not. They went after the aluminum industry that had constantly falling costs. I mean, the the, the reason you have, in theory, uh, antitrust, is because some company becomes so powerful um, that it can't compete, and it wipes out all its competitors, and it raises taxes, it raises prices, right, and it price gouges. What actually was happening in those cases was there was so much competition that the leading company had to keep dropping prices. The, the oil company that Rockefeller had kept lowering prices. That's what consumers want. That's what you want. You want competition. Uh, The aluminum industry that they broke up was constantly dropping its prices as new competitors came on and they were trying to compete. Uh, No, there, there really isn't a proper role for government in trying to manage competition. They set up rules given certain technologies in a certain day, which is why this whole... Here, we know the fix to global warming, okay? So assume for a moment that the globe is warming and people are doing it and it is carbon dioxide that causes it. um, And uh, how do you react to that? Why would you do something that's a problem over the next 100 years with today's technology? Is there a problem in 1900 that you really wish we'd stuck with the technology (laughs) of the 1900s to fix, like, I don't know, transportation? Um, Right technology, as long as the government stays out of the way and innovation give you so much better policy and so much improved outcomes than some government bureaucrat with his finger up his nose going, here's my thought. Everybody should do this for the next 30 years. Laws don't change. When we do tax reform at 86, it was 30 years until we looked at it again in any sort of serious reform. Welfare, it took 40 years to get... Um, any reform on welfare, despite all the failings we knew. And that was one-time thing. And then they didn't go and keep working on it. The market makes changes every day. The government makes changes every 30 years. If New Coke had been run by the federal government, we'd be drinking New Coke, not the classic Coke, because once they decided to go to New Coke, we'd still be living in that zone.
0: Right. Well, you know, and I guess I would counter that if I if I continue to sure. play devil's advocate on the issue, you know, Companies like as long
1: as you know your position is the devil's position. Go
0: ahead. <laughs> I don't know if I'll go that far, but I'll let you have that teasing. one. Go, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> ahead.
1: Yeah.
0: So this is Grover Norquist on the phone, by the way, for our listeners joining us, listening to American View. Representing
1: and, the good guys.
0: <laughs> representing it's the good the, guys. All the right. The voice of the devil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, Google, though, right now, for instance, they control – According to this article I got in front of me, um, 86% of web searches in America uh, just go through Google. 75% of Americans who are on the internet are also on Facebook. I mean, they're not just companies that are providing a a technical service either. uh, You know, a single one. Um, They, you know, focus on all sorts of different things. Google kind of is really the, the occupies is the biggest competitor when it comes to ads online, and they're gathering information on Americans. Um, through all their applications, that I think has a lot of people concerned. I mean, if we're not just talking about you know, a, a, you know, a kind of a clear cut, defined set of goods and services, is it concerning when you know we start to see these companies that aren't just controlling a technology, but really have the power to control a conversation? I mean, some have even looked out there. There have been studies done um, that have shown, you know, I think it was even referenced in a National Review article that that Google has the potential to really influence elections around the world just because they get to rank what comes up in a search you know does is, does that change the conversation when you have such a, a company that it is kind of uh, you know I, I i am always one to to caution the idea to say oh we've never had this before because usually the chances are in history you do have some sort of similar example but you know you do kind of see with google it seems that they you know have control over so much more of the conversation and you could say the same thing i guess about um, Amazon or Facebook or these other companies that just specialize in, in so much. I mean, does that change the conversation?
1: Yes. Yeah. I understand that it looks like that to younger people um, who don't remember the 50 years of dominance of ABC, CBS, and NBC. Three people would come on every night and in the same order, um, it was something like watching Soviet television. They all had the same five issues that were important that day. They all had the same take on them, all three. I mean, theoretically, one of them could have been more conservative or free market, but they weren't. They were just in lockstep, three things. It was never one said, today the most interesting thing was in Alabama and the other guys, no, it was in China. They had the same, and they got their information from the New York Times, and that's how they decided what was important. It was stifling. This, for a conservative, is all the difference in the world. We have talk radio. We have, we. I have a Twitter feed. I talk to 70,000 people. There are people, conservatives with Twitter feeds with millions of supporters. President talks to the whole world. Goes right past the gatekeepers of ABC, CBS, NBC, the New York Times. What you're seeing is some people, oh, these other guys could be gatekeepers. Well, they have to compete with the three networks. They have to compete with Fox. They have to compete with all of the various cable shows, conservative and liberal. There has never been a time where the conservative message got more access. Why would I ask on um, benefit the Washington post by attacking ads on uh, Twitter or whatever, when we have much more access to Facebook, to Twitter, to any of these than we've ever had before. And more than we ever had to ABC, CBS, NBC, the Washington post, the New York times. Um, we should be embracing that diversity and, and that opportunity and running with it. This, how did Trump win? Because, among other things, social media is more open to communicating in the same way that radio talk shows, which when we got rid of the Fairness Doctrine, where the government was trying right. to decide what was fair, right, and uh, if somebody said one thing that was controversial, which means conservative, that you'd have to have somebody say the left thing, and they they took the position that all of their positions were not controversial. (laughs) Therefore, they didn't need to be rebutted. You know, let's have more money to spend on X, Y, and Z. Well, that doesn't need to be rebutted. But if I wanted to talk about cutting taxes, oh, we better have somebody in on the other side. That was a government regulation that was put in. Reagan got rid of it. Um, And that's when talk radio became not, you know, some guy reading the New York Times and telling you what to think. But somebody... Opening up the lines and having conversation, and conservative voices flourished. And the left wanted the license radio talk shows.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and well, and, 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 and the removal of that regulation certainly um, did a lot of great things here in the country. I agree, agree with you on that. One last question on but this lead, issue: but leading
1: conservatives opposed that because they didn't see the opportunity.
0: Yeah, I, fair point. Um, so going back to the barriers of entry idea, what would you say? Would be a clear barrier of entry, I mean, I guess, is it just regulation? Is that what you do say? Would be preventing companies from, let's say, entering the market? I mean, it, would it count that, you know, for instance, Amazon, it seems, um, paid, I think it was close to zero corporate taxes in, uh, in previous years just because of the fact of the, the ways that they've used loopholes, basically, and the way that they have their factories positioned around the, the country. I mean, does that concern you at all, or is that considered a barrier of entry?
1: Uh, step one: There should be no corporate income tax because it just screws everything up. And but so you they're you just p- pay not paying that money. And small you companies are. Yeah. I mean, but the reason they um, had zero or close to zero federal income tax liability: many local governments, many state taxes, those sorts of things. They they collect social security taxes, um, so they pay a lot in taxes. But the, the corporate income tax. Uh, they could have gotten close to zero. And the reason is if you're expanding so rapidly and you're investing, you're not making any money. You're spending it all. <laughs> you know, when you, we want people to expense new buildings. This is part of the Trump, uh, tax plan as well. If you spend a million dollars on a new factory, we don't tax you on that million the way as if you'd earned it and put it in a bank. We say, okay, that you expense that, you don't pay taxes on that because it's investing. Now, mm-hmm. when that creates wealth and income, then um, you pay taxes on it. When you sell the stock, you pay a capital gains tax. When you get an, uh, a dividend, you pay a capital gain. They pay many taxes. Uh, the people actually own um, uh, major companies, but you you don't want them double paying taxes on their investments. You want to encourage Investing in new factories and new and new plants and so on, so the fact that a company isn't paying taxes could either be it's not making any money or it's investing so much it's taking all its profits, pouring it back into the company, and not taking anything out right. that's a good sign, uh, not a bad sign
0: well, and you know one last question on, on a more yeah. general thing so of course, you're the president of Americans for tax reform. And before we go here with you, I just want to ask you, you know, what is it that you're focusing on right now that concerns you the most about what we see from the 2020 Democratic or yeah 2020 Democratic presidential contenders?
1: Well, if they get the House, Senate and the presidency, they have said they will uh, repeal the Republican Trump tax cuts for the median income family of four. That's two thousand dollars. Uh, every year in higher taxes, it almost doubles, uh, more than doubles their uh, tax burden on the federal income tax uh, for a median income single parent with one child. It's a $1,300, $1,300 tax increase every year going into the future. This is amazing, amazing, amazing hit on the middle class. They also want to go after a, a carbon tax and energy tax. That would be turned into a value-added tax. The goal of the Europeans, when I was in college, our friends on the left wanted to turn us into East Germany. Uh, Now they just want to turn us into, they think, Sweden or Denmark. Actually, Sweden in many ways is more free market than the United States. They have no death tax. They have no wealth tax. Uh, They are very open uh, uh, to trade on markets. And uh, they've got very good intellectual property rights. Minus the taxpayer health care, though. (laughs) Oh, and well, and they, to pay for their health care, they have a value added tax, about 20%. Right. What sales tax do you pay on some goods? You would be paying 20% on everything if we had a European style tax. And their income tax on the middle income people in Sweden is 10 to 20 points higher than an American family in the same uh, range in, in, in income. So Europe gets their money for the social welfare programs and government-run health care by taxing the middle class because that's where the money is. There just aren't enough billionaires um, to uh, fund anything particularly interesting on a long-term basis. Uh, and they cut their heads off. You could steal a trillion, you know, yep. you could steal a billion dollars now, but then next year you got nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and they need $32 trillion just to do Medicare for every $32 trillion, which is roughly doubling the federal income
0: tax. Wow. And that's in the United States.
1: Yes. To to make the United States look like Europe, that's what you do.
0: Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show this morning. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Good to be with you. Hey, And we understand also that you have a a Hillsdale intern right now, I believe, um, Ryan Goff. So we we hope that's all going well as well. We always like to support our own. We love our Hillsdale
1: interns.
0: Great. Well, you have a great day. You too. All right. So that was Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform. Um, We love to talk to him when we can, ask him questions. Play Devil's Advocate is one of the things we do on this show. I know it seems like a kind of an interesting way to start start off a show given all the news that's been happening. But, you know, as we move through this presidential cycle, this campaign cycle, we want to keep you informed, our listeners. And we're going to do our best to do that by approaching a lot of these issues through our episodes um, now, though, I want to move to probably the biggest story, one of the biggest stories of the weekend. I'm going to tell you why it's not the biggest story later on in the show, and that is the killing of Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, the founder of ISIS. President Trump announced this on um, Sunday morning, of course. And, you know, it was really fascinating to see the way in which the left reacted to this. Now, there are two parts to this story that I want to get across to you that I don't think you're going to get from a lot of the other main media outlets out there. So that's why you listen to American View and Radio Free Hillsdale, okay? So the first part of this story is, look, the media has been portraying a narrative about President Trump's foreign policy. And the most fascinating thing about this is that I I honestly think that um, President Trump had the last laugh. And you'll know what I'm talking about when I play this clip for you from Saturday Night Live, where they mock the president um, for leaving Syria. This is before the media knew that that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi would be killed by American forces later, just a couple hours later in the evening.
1: OK, who's next? You, sir, please. Oh, so great you. to see a young Trump supporter. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you. And uh, where are you from, son? New Mexico? ISIS. Yeah, I was a prisoner in Syria until last week when you freed me. So uh, I just wanted to say thank
0: you for bringing jobs back oh. to ISIS. And I promise that I will make ISIS great again. Woo!
1: Terrific. What a great guy. ISIS is back in a big, big way, folks. And we love that, don't we? Okay. But wait, who's coming up now? Does- All right. So that was,
0: uh, you know, Saturday Night Live, Alec Baldwin playing President Trump. And, you know, this is the way they want to portray the president uh, is basically as kind of a buffoon. So that was a fake rally that they were showing. And they had a bunch of people come up. They had the deplorables. Of course, they have to make fun of all those fans out there that show up to, you know, because they can't figure out why 40,000, 50,000 people show up to his rallies. And they the media has been portraying the image that, you know, as president, he does not know what he's doing when it comes to foreign policy. But, you know, for a guy that does not seem to know what he's doing, for a White House that seems to be chaotic, you know, he seems to come out on top a lot when it comes to both foreign policy successes and others um, when the cards finally fall. It seems that always there's this kind of, like, chaos, screaming, yelling, panic, uh, you know, this is terrible, and then something happens that you completely don't expect. Then the media has to rush and change their story. So we, we saw that happen, of course, with the Washington Post, Um, You know, they ran some crazy headlines where they called Abu al-Baghdadi a, you know, astute uh, religious scholar. I mean, really weird. They have since, you know, taken that headline away. When we get back, though, we're going to talk about what that means and how the president has used his own words, which some have called uh, harsh, to say the least. How he's used those words, um, essentially, to make the democrats themselves and all the people in the media on the left look kind of foolish so that's what we're going to talk about when we get back on american view i'm ben dietrich i'm your host here you're listening to american view where hillsdale meets the nation on radio free hillsdale 101.7 fm stay with us Welcome back to American View on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Ben Dietrich. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale's American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. So we've been talking to you about the um, death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Quite a, a tongue twister there to pronounce, if we're being honest. But um, we're doing okay. I was watching Fox last night, and they weren't as good at you know, getting that one on the teleprompter and pronouncing it properly. So we're we're trying our best here. That's all we can do, right? So, you know, I talked to you about the first part of this story, which is that, you know, this, this thing kind of just completely upset the media narrative because of the fact that, look, they were, you know, they like to portray the president as being chaotic, as him having no idea what he's doing when it comes to foreign policy. So they have this video, for instance, on SNL, where they literally, you know, are just out there and... What they're doing is they just mock the president, they make him look like he's a friend of ISIS. Now, when that doesn't work, because that doesn't make any sense, that joke's not funny when the next day he's talking about them, you know, this guy dying like a dog, whimpering like a coward. Uh, Well, okay, that sounds harsh, right? So they decide, I guess we'll be the ones that are going to help out ISIS. They take the, the, the narrative, you know, of basically that you've seen on the left before, that one man's, you know, terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, but do the American people really buy that? Do the world does the world really buy that when you're talking about ISIS? I mean, this is the caliphate we're talking about—the people that are responsible for deaths all across the world, for trucks ramming into Christmas markets in Europe, um, for terrible, disgusting attacks in in France, and shootings in the United States as well. I mean, is that really something that is believable? Um, and, and the answer I would say is I, I don't think so. And, and you know, this is this is where it gets kind of interesting though because it, i i do think it, it does end up backfiring okay so president trump goes out there and he had a, a lot to say um i wanted to play you a part of his press conference and and look it, uh, we should talk about this press conference we're going to explain what he said he used a lot of graphic words to, to describe the death of abu al-baq Baghdadi, and um there's a reason for that you know there the people on the left would say oh that's just the way trump talks if it's not intentional then yeah it's weird um To use those words definitely, but at this point, are we really going to say that none of this is is unintentional? that the president you know continuously just you know makes these decisions and just happens to have these these successes fall into his lap is Is that what's happening every single time? Is that you know really the narrative? We have to assume you know at the very least that the president has some sort of intent as to what he's doing. so I want to play this clip for you guys, and this is him responding to the media. After he said he died like a dog, dog, he died like a coward. He was asked a question about it. He explains why he said that. Then we're going to break it down for you. Um, Here we go.
1: He died like a dog. He died like a coward. He was whimpering, screaming, and crying. And frankly, I think it's something that should be brought out so that his followers and all of these young kids that want to leave various countries, including the United States, they should see how he died. He didn't die a hero. He died a coward, crying, whimpering, screaming and bringing three kids with him to die a certain death. And he knew the tunnel had no end. I mean, it was a uh, it was a closed, closed end. They call it a closed end tunnel. Not a good place to be.
0: So, of course, the, the media there attacks him. And like we said in the beginning of the first half, you know, the Washington Post first ran a headline that said in his obituary, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, austere religious scholar at the helm of the Islamic State. First of all, this completely you know, contradicts the narrative the left has um, you know, about the whole idea that uh, these ISIS people aren't actually people from, that represent the Muslim faith. So I don't know how that works. And maybe this headline was just a joke, but it really, it wasn't just that story, okay? It was not just that one headline. You also saw on NPR that they praise, um, you know, they praise this guy as well, and they, they call him a real leader. I want to read you some quotes that were, um, you, can, you can find online as well, from an NPR show that talked about his death the next morning as well. You know, they were saying things like, quote, he led a movement that we've never seen before, you know, ISIS had tens of thousands of members, fighters coming in from all over the world. You might say, OK, yeah, you know, they were influential and they consider, you know, they continue to talk about the accomplishments they had uh, that as they perceived it. You know, they controlled massive amounts of territory, uh, millions of people under their control. They administered cities, they collected taxes, and they had this incredible online recruitment presence in terms of spreading propaganda Uh and led this group that had done something we'd never seen before. This isn't the end of ISIS, but he was a real leader. It's not somebody that they can just appoint over somebody else. His leadership was critical. So look, it's one thing to say that this person, you know, that that ISIS has wreaked a lot of havoc on this world, that they have, you know, and all honestly (laughs) brought sheer evil into the world and to call out what they actually did and, you know, the, you know, but, but, who here is helping the terrorist case, okay? The left con- says Donald Trump is because he took troops out of Syria. But then you got people like that on the American media channels calling these pe- this guy a great leader. What is leadership, the, the, the definition that they're looking at? And this is something that's very different from the way I think Hillsdale perceives things and the way that the rest of the world does. It's like when we talk about politics. You, we, we don't say here we're studying political science. We say we're studying politics. And that means that you can't just, it's not just a means towards an end. All right, you know, is it really healthy for our society to say that being a good leader means simply exercising power over others? You know, I I like to think that there can be a a nobler definition of leadership that's tied towards the good, that's tied toward what a good leader is. So to be a a leader, as, as should be discussed when we talk about terrible, disgusting individuals like this guy, this ISIS terrorist here, we should not call him a leader, you know, um... And unfortunately, that's just not what the left wanted to do. The Washington Post, after they ran that headline, which they did then redact, they went on to other headlines. They, you know, ran things like three ways the Baghdadi raid undermines Trump's chaotic policy. They got to prove, you know, they got to fight back. This is bad. You know, can't get a positive news story out for President Trump. That could be terrible. The U.S. kills an ISIS leader, but Trump is giving the group a new lease on life. Now, why does the President you know put that all aside? Why does the President choose these words and and the, the key here is that you know he like he said in the clip that you heard earlier, uh we need to make clear to everybody around the world that is going to consider taking the going down this path that these people are nothing but cowards, okay you know, a lot of people don't know. I was, I was listening to a professor the other day in class. I'll leave him unnamed, but uh, he was saying that you know. The easiest way, the way that they get these terrorists to crack when they bring them in for interrogation is they show videos of their so-called brothers crying, whimpering, confessing. Because it breaks down this, this narrative they have in their heads, the brainwashing they've been told that these guys are heroes, that they are the bravest people on earth. And this goes back to the definition of words that matters. What do we consider bravery to be? Is it simply standing up for a cause? Is loyalty simply standing up for being loyal to to whatever your friend is, regardless of what he's doing? Or is loyalty, is courage, those virtues, are they tied inherently to something good? And of course, we know where uh, you know Aristotle stands on that. We know where the American tradition traditionally stands on that. But the left, of course, when it comes to politics, you know, they are only against terrorists. It seems, and I, I hate to say this because it disgusts me. But it seems they're only against terrorists when it's politically convenient for them. I, I don't get this, guys. I mean, there's like nothing out there these days that they can't just take and use for political gain. And, and you know, um, look, the president has a unique way of doing things. But I, I do think there was an intention here. So we got to move on to the impeachment story, of course. Um, and we're going to move on to that. One more thing I want to say in regards to this. You saw on Sunday the big story that came after this was – a non-story, frankly, in my opinion. And that was that the president got booed at a Nationals game. Are, is anybody surprised out there, guys? Is anybody surprised that the president of the United States got booed in a city that voted 96%, you know, for Democrats? Is that really that shocking? I mean, it is the Swamp, right? He's went to a baseball game in the Swamp, and you know those tickets are expensive. Who do you think goes to those World Series baseball games in Washington, D.C. for the World Series? Okay. It's not It's not like a, a, a clear indicator of the general electorate. <laughs> Give me a break. It's, what do you think it is? You know, it's the elitists. it's the politicians of this city, the staffers, the people that prop up, you know, what D.C. really is and what he's fighting against. So no shocker there. But hey, it's convenient for the media to run, you know, make the president look bad. He had one, one news story that could be good and they didn't like the language he used, so... Move on to that, right? So, Nancy Pelosi in other news caves. That's what happened yesterday. And the media will try and portray it. Otherwise, you got uh, CNN out there saying, oh, you know, the impeachment hearings are going to the next step. What does that mean? This is what it actually means. I got the letter here right in front of you. I'm happy to read parts of it here. I got it from her website. Um, They are opening this impeachment hearing. Finally, they're going to have a vote. It's going to be in the public now. And they are following past protocols that all impeachment hearings have followed. Now, it's not in the Constitution to do this, but they got a lot of pressure in the last week. Finally, when President Trump, I think it was at the beginning of last week on our Tuesday show, he made a point of going on the news and saying, you know, you guys should really be defending me more, the Republicans in the Senate and the House. And that's exactly what they did. And they talked about the unfairness, the way in which literally Adam Schiff is basically running closed door hearings in which he has these guys come in, if he doesn't like what they say, never gets out to the public. If he likes what they say, then he leaks it. I mean, you know, talking about controlling the narrative, the, the, the power hungriness of these people to, you know, and it was just too obvious. It was just, it, you know, I think it was losing traction in, in, with the American people. So they're going to try something new. Um, they're going to open it to the public, and, and she's hoping that she has the votes on Thursday, and I wouldn't be surprised if she does. You know, they have a majority, uh, it, you know, by 40 or so, something seats. In the house, they should be able to to vote on it if their you know whole party is really behind this. We'll see what happens there, but it's pretty funny because this letter she sends out to her colleagues is like you know, dear Democratic colleagues, for weeks the president, his counsel in the White House, and his allies in Congress have made the baseless claim that the House of Representatives impeachment inquiry lacks the necessary authorization for a valid impeachment hearing. They argue that not because the house has not taken any vote, or excuse me, because the house has not taken any vote. And they may simply pretend the impeachment inquiry does not exist. Of course, this argument has no merit. Uh, the Trump administration has made up this argument, apparently out of whole cloth. So she says this argument is fake. But then she concludes by saying, yeah, but we're going to open up the impeachment hearing anyway. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, you can say it's, it's like it's the classic, oh, I'm not doing this because you, everybody yelled at me for not doing this. I'm just doing this because I felt it was the time to do it. You know, people don't really buy that. So, you know, we're, we're following this impeachment story. Um, the question is, really, where does this fall with the American people? Um, and I think what we've seen, I, I, I frankly, I don't really know anything that's new. I think we, yeah, we've, we, we now know basically... That there were people in the Trump White House that did express concern with the phone call bec- between President Trump and the Ukrainian president. We have the phone call. We've heard it. The American people, I think, know the biggest facts of this already. I don't think anybody is arguing that in any other circumstances this would be an impeachable offense by any means, based on what other presidents have done. I mean, the the aid that the so called you know um, pro quo in this situation. Was given to the Ukrainians. Eventually, it was not, you know, held, and it was not deliberately said in the phone call. Hey, it was not made clear to them that it was directly tied to Biden. We read the phone call on the show earlier. You can check it out on our Facebook page. It's American View, by the way, folks. Um, check us out, American View WRFH, or on Spotify, American View Radio Free Hillsdale. You know, so we we have all that, and what this really means right now um, is basically, look, people were concerned. But what I think threatens this among, amongst everything else is when you show in comparison the things that the Democrats had did when they were in power, when President Obama was in power, um, that were just so much more worse. I mean, you want to talk about abusing. The whole argument here is that President Trump used his office for political gain, okay? Now, we remember all the stories and scandals that came out, and the, pres- you know, the, the Republicans didn't impeach Obama when um, we saw the IRS you know, target conservatives. And, and now what's happening with this uh, Attorney General Barr thing, last week at the end of the week, we hear that Durham, the prosecutor for the Attorney General's office, that's investigating how this Russia collusion story started in the first place. Yeah, because President Trump has been put up to a lot of scrutiny. Two years of that, which came to nothing. No fruition there. He has turned his investigation into a criminal one. The media doesn't know what to say about this. It's, it's pretty funny. They're just like, you know, this is bad. Uh, Obama, or excuse me, Trump is using the attorney general's office for political reasons. They have no idea what they could be investigating if it matters. They don't care. You know, anybody that is going to attack Barack Obama, ooh, they're a bad guy. <laughs> but more and more facts are coming out about the way in which the Hillary Clinton campaign not conspired with the Ukrainian government. Um, there's that story. You know, how did they, how did we get... This dossier, the steel dossier that started this all. And it seems that the Clinton campaign may very well have been working with the Ukrainians. And the Wall Street Journal rightly in their opinion page last week pointed out the double standard there. You know, you talk about President Trump doing this. And not only do we have the Joe Biden side of things where we don't really know what happened there. We also don't really know what happened with the Clinton side of things. And, and, you know, thank goodness the Attorney General's office is investigating the origins of this collusion story, over the, even though Democrats don't think it's necessary. And what I, I just don't get is, you know, if the Democrats wanted their impeachment hearings to look authentic, you know, just say, OK, we'll wait and see what they have to say. We, you know, we want We want clarity for the American people. We, we want to hold President Trump to a high bar, but we're going to hold ourselves to one, too. Nancy Pelosi can't end her letter that I just read by saying nobody is above the law but then only care about President Trump being above the law. That's not going to work, okay? Rule of law in this country is not mean that 50% of people are exempt from it, you know? Especially not when that's the ruling class, the people that have been in power. So there's an article in The Federalist. you got to hear this, guys. This is, this is stuff that I, I read this yesterday, and I was shocked. This is from a new book coming out by Lee Smith. The article in The Federalist, go check it out afterwards, How the Obama Administration Set in Motion the Democrats' Coup Against Trump. And what this is about is is essentially what the Obama administration did um, until the hour that President Obama left office, up until the inauguration of the new president. And it's it's crazy stuff here, okay? Um, Basically, what they claim in this article is that Obama put together with, um, with Susan Rice and with his CIA team a file that was specifically intended to um, show how the Russians had influenced the election to help President Trump. But uh, it was done in a way that didn't really follow any other protocols. It was led by people like the head of the CIA, which was none other than John Brennan, the guy that we know has a clear vendetta against Trump. This is the same guy that for the last two years... Up until the end of the Mueller report, claimed that there was absolute evidence that he had seen in the CIA that suggested that Trump had colluded with the Russians. And then Mueller said, "Actually, yeah, no, that doesn't really. I couldn't find it. You know, he probably would have loved it if Brennan could have given it to him." So they work all together, and um, they exclude the transition team from knowing about this information. And the bombshell, I think, is really the meetings that that you know Trump had with the CIA, or excuse me, Obama had with the CIA. Towards the end of this, um, where he met with people like Angela Merkel, and he also met with his own staff in the, in the White House. And um, the things that he had to say were very interesting. Um, let me read you an excerpt of this article. Obama was working against Trump until the hour he left office. His national security advisor, Susan Rice, commemorated it with an email to herself on January 20, many moments before the Trump inauguration. She wrote to memorialize a meeting in the White House two weeks before. On January 5th, a briefing by IC leadership, that's the intelligence groups, on Russian hacking during the 2016 election, President Obama had a brief follow-on conversation with FBI Director Jim Comey and Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates in the Oval Office. Vice President Biden and I were also present. President Obama began the conversation by stressing his continued commitment to ensuring that every aspect of this issue is handled by the intelligence and law enforcement communities by the book, the president stressed that he is not asking about initiating or instructing anything from a law enforcement perspective. He reiterated that our law enforcement team needs to proceed as normally as it would by the book. From a national security perspective, however, President Obama said he wants to be sure that as we engage with the incoming team, that means Trump, we are mindful to ascertain if there's any reason that we cannot share information fully as it relates to Russia. The president asked Comey to inform him if anything changes in the next few weeks and that should affect how we share classified information with the incoming team. Comey said he would. So he calls this by the book, guys, but I've got to be honest with you. The way in which they did this was not by the book. They wrote a report. They didn't tell the Republicans about it, um, and then they basically classified a bunch of information, uh, declassified a bunch of information regarding Russia um, that was not even necessarily verified, but you know, a lot of information out there declassified to the lowest levels. That meant that the widest amount of people in the White House possible could have access to that information. And then they sold it to news stories that were run in places like the New York Times, the Washington Post and all of those. Um, And it should come of no surprise considering what we've learned. You know, Victor Davis Hanson is the one that cited in his book how since then, Obama press officials have boasted about how they could sell any story to the media. And they were just so loved. And they boast about this now, that they could sell anything. So keep on following this story. Check out that article. Um, I think there could be more to that there than we knew. And it sounds like even President Obama was involved. We'll find out what happens there. I'm not saying we should do anything until we hear the full story. So we have a couple minutes left here, guys. Before we go, um, you know, I just want to share uh, one more thing with you. And, uh, and that, of course, is right before that, Kanye West has come out with his new, you know, his new album, Jesus is, is life. Jesus is king, excuse me. And um, it's interesting to see where that goes. That's a big cultural issue. Uh, if we hear some parts of it, we're going to play you just a little bit here as we go out. Um, and uh, this guy's a pop artist. The media wants to call him crazy because he's a fan of the president. But he's still incredibly pop- popular. And, you know, he's been having these church services. We had a Hillsdale student go to it. And it uh, just goes to show you what can happen. I mean, his songs are about, like, Chick-fil-A. They're about um, Christianity. They're about, you know, fatherless fatherless children and the downfall of that. The value of having, you know, fatherhood in life. Um, how he sympathizes with single mothers. Completely changes what, what rap is normally about. So as we go out today, we'll, we'll play a little bit about, of that. And um, we hope you'll listen to us again. This has been American View on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Check us out on Facebook, American View WRFH. Check us out on SoundCloud as well. Thank you so much.